Well, welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 summer interlude between seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. The Marvel and Mystery of Man, Part 2. A central theme in scripture is the privileged place of human beings within creation, beginning with our first parents, set in the garden of God as vicegerents over the created order. The wonder of man is that he occupies a kingly position as the religious center of the temporal cosmos. Remember, Christ the King and creator is himself made man, the last Adam, establishing continuity between creation and redemption. We therefore see in the Bible that everything in the universe by God's creational purpose is specifically related to human beings. So much so that our fall into sin impacted all of creation. The cosmos itself now awaits our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, before it will be released from its bondage to decay, according to Paul in Romans 8. The significance of the human person is truly a marvel, and yet the question, what is man, is by no means simple to answer. The question, who and what is man as God's image bearer, in his selfhood, that is, in the unity of his existence, is a profound one that involves a mystery. The embodied person, the unity you know as I, the one who thinks, feels, hears, imagines, believes and acts, somehow transcends, that is, cannot be reduced to, the functions of thinking, feeling, acting, knowing, and believing. In other words, I experience these various act structures of my existence within the various aspects of created reality. The selfhood is the central point of reference of all this concrete functioning, but it is itself not defined or qualified by thinking or believing or willing. Put simply, I cannot be reduced to or simply identified with any of these various acts. Our very bodies find their unity in the I-ness which somehow transcends creational structures. The inner selfhood and our outer physicality are bound so closely together as a whole that we experience our physical presence as our body, not a body. And yet we cannot be reduced to the physical chemistry of the brain or biological functions of our bodily makeup. Our bodies are accessible to various types of scientific analysis because of their physical composite character. But as Kalsbeek has pointed out, and I quote, the human eye is not a 
composite or configuration of elements. For this reason, the human eye is and remains the great mystery for a philosophical anthropology. Its simple, singular nature is not accessible to analysis. We cannot form a theoretic concept of the human selfhood." End quote. We cannot know what a human being is simply by analysis of her physical components, nor can we know what a human person is simply by the I-thou relationship we sustain to our fellow human beings. For there we are confronted with the same problem of identity. We can only know what a human being is when related back to our origin in God who made man in his image. This image is expressed in our ability to know and worship God and our response ability, which is different from animals, to represent God in creation. It is from this religious relation to God that our relationship to the rest of creation and our fellow man finds its meaning. From ancient times till now, thinkers investigating creation have distinguished various realms or dimensions of cosmic reality. Generally, we recognize the following distinctions in creation. An inorganic dimension, stones, mountains, hydrogen molecules. Then we recognize an organic or biotic dimension. We can think about plant life. Then we also distinguish a psychical dimension, the realm of animals possessing some form of consciousness and feeling. Lower groups have perceptions or sensations because of sense organs, while higher groups like birds and mammals have not only instincts and reflexes, but feelings of a sort and various drives. And finally, we have the spiritive dimension of human beings who have on top of all these other things, a richly developed thought and cultural life, making knowledge-based decisions of the will. So, uh, we can readily identify inanimate things, plants, lower animals, higher animals, and human beings, man. Now, we observe in Genesis 1 the formation of these basic realms. In verse 1, we have the appearance of material things on the first day of creation. Heaven and earth, or cosmic reality, is spoken into being, giving us the inanimate world. In verse 12, on the third day, plant life, or the biotic and organic order, is created. In verse 21, on the fifth day, we read of the creation of lower animals so that the psychical world of sensation comes into being. In verse 25, on the sixth day, the higher animals are created. This is a richer psychical realm that includes feeling or basic emotion. Then in verse 27, on the sixth day, 
we read of the special creation of man and the introduction of the spiritive element into creation in addition to everything else. Clearly then, there are very different structures within the rich diversity of creation. These are not just differences of degree, but of kind. Not all of it is of the same nature, and so these distinct realms cannot be reduced to one another. Now, though clearly not aiming at an exact scientific categorization, the Apostle Paul affirms as much in 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 41. He says, not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars, for one star differs from another star in splendor. So a vital distinction in scripture is that the only creature in heaven or earth made in the image of God after his likeness is man, made male and female. Accordingly, he has a particular kind of splendor as the head of creation. The whole cosmos finds its center in man, the raison d'etre of creation. Christ Jesus emphasized the central place of man clearly, not only by his own incarnation, but by the relative value he placed on human beings. Think of the accounts in the New Testament where he cursed a fruitless tree and it withered, but he healed the lepers, the blind and deaf, wherever he found them. When delivering the man possessed by a legion of devils at Gennesaret, he permitted those devils to go into a herd of pigs which ran off a cliff to their deaths. He even taught that the seventh day, the Sabbath, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Two outstanding Christian philosophers of the last century, Hermann Doerwerd and Dirk Vollenhoven, identified five structural layers to the human person, forming an intricate complex of functions. Their framework provides, I think, a very helpful insight for resisting the reduction of human beings to less than they are, which leads to all manner of marring God's image, including anthropomorphizing animals and zoomorphizing man. This framework is laid out in the chart that you can see on your screen. Now, what is critical to note in terms of combating humanistic conceptions of the human person within the church is that each new layer in that chart presupposes all those below, but the new structure cannot be derived from or reduced to the previous layer. If either the various aspects of created reality or the distinct structural layers of man are reduced to each other, then we are confronted with the essence of paganism and monism, that all distinctions are unreal and at best illusory. In other words, the physical structural facet of man cannot produce the biotic 
or mental layers. Dr. Willem Auernale, a fellow of the Ezra Institute, a scientist, theologian, and philosopher, explains when he says, quote, we cannot construe here some evolutionary process in which higher forms of life gradually acquire a new structural layer, which supposedly sprouts from the previous structural layers. Each structural layer represents an essentially new and different mode of existence, a new level of organization, irreducible to previous structural layers. There is no developmental process involved. The notion of abiogenesis followed by gradual development is essentially a form of evolutionary animism because it denies the irreducibility of one aspect of the created order and one layer of man's being to another, so that everything is viewed as essentially alive in a continuity of being. If this is not resisted, all the distinctions within creation begin to fall, not only between male and female, but between man, animal, and even inanimate things. Scriptural faith teaches that man is truly distinct from the animals and all other forms of life, despite being made from similar stuff. Human beings have a mental or spiritive structural layer that makes us stand at an infinite distance even from the higher animals. A chimpanzee, for example, cannot play chess, at least I've never seen that, read a novel, develop a mathematical equation, play the piano, paint a picture, or build a spacecraft. Chimps do not develop culture and so have no cultural history. Something as simple as showing embarrassment is beyond a chimpanzee. Now, although chimpanzees have all the physiology necessary to blush, they never blush, even after flinging poo, because it lacks the spiritive mental structural life of a human being. Now, it's true that we share the first four structural layers identified by Doyeverd and Vollenhoven with higher animals. But even then, man's flesh, as St. Paul teaches, is distinct from that of the animals. This is made clear by the fact that the physico-chemical matter in humans must be capable of carrying not only the physiological processes, life, the perceptive and sensitive processes, as also seen in animals, but also the mental life of humans with our complex thoughts, deliberations, decisions, imagination, and creative genius. As such, the physical structural layer in humans, not just the mental structure, is totally unique and capable of doing things that the physical structure in animals cannot do. Perhaps most importantly, this uniqueness is why man is responsible for his actions. Because he is also a thinking, deliberating, and moral being, man has response ability. An animal does not. 
Uh, Willem Auernale reinforces this point when he says, quote, the important conclusion from this is that the creation of humans required not only the special creation of the mental structural layer, but also the special creation of the previous physical, biotic, perceptive, and sensitive structural layers. In other words, human beings differ from plants and animals not only because people have a mental structural layer, which animals do not, but also because humans have different physical, biotic, perceptive, and sensitive structural layers than animals. Now, the effort to minimize the uniqueness of humanity began early, revived with the Enlightenment, and has continued in a variety of ways which distort the marvel and mystery of man. For example, the Greek philosopher Aristotle sought to absolutize, that is, deify the life aspect of creation. His position is what philosophers later called vitalism. Later, other forms of animism, that is a kind of materialism, emerged which reduced man and all life to the physical, denying the distinct reality of the mental or spiritive life of persons. Now, this view was actually reinforced and advanced by Darwinism. The noted Russian materialist and biochemist Alexander Oparin, famous for his primordial soup theory of the origins of life, regarded the difference between actual life and other forms of matter as simply one of organization and quality, which obliges us, he says, to regard life as a special form of the motion of matter. Here, the substitute divinity concept is matter in motion. The unbeliever of necessity has to invent substitute gods to explain the development of everything. In contrast to the materialist, the spiritualists, not spiritists, claim that matter is compressed energy, which is another word for mind, so that matter is actually spiritive in nature. In human beings, the spiritive, that is the conscious mind, is said to have come to its fullest development. Both find the ground and explanation of all things inside tangible reality, which is to say, both of these views look within creation for the origin of everything, nullifying the reality of man as God's unique image bearer, and so destroying man as man. Now, the consequences of this are far-reaching. Because of a denial of the scriptural perspective of man's unique position in creation, man being reduced to one or other of the aspects in which he functions, we are faced today with an identity crisis for human beings. Where human beings are variously reduced to misunderstood aspects of created reality, where the origin and meaning of all things is sought completely within that aspect or combination of aspects, is there any hope of locating true meaningfulness? and the unity of man. 
Thankfully, in the word of God, human beings are not redacted to one of their parts, but viewed holistically. For example, the emotional life of human beings cannot be isolated from everything else and then used as the source of all explanation. The same could be said for our physical, cultural, or faith life. Rather, our emotions in the Bible are often associated with the heart, the kidneys, and the bowels, physical organs. All parts of the human person are involved with each other in all human thoughts and actions. According to scripture, from the heart as the religious center, spring the issues of life. The word of God therefore resists the Greek pagan view that divides the human person into parts as separate substances like physical substance and immortal soul substance. And instead it teaches us that the whole person is a unity directed towards God so that the body is devoted to God and the flesh yearns for God. We are not a soul thing inside another body thing. Now, certainly my heart as the unity of my person is not physical, but neither is it a thing that can be simply and easily distinguished from the body. As human beings, we do not think, feel, desire, or believe without the body. To imagine otherwise would be like speaking of a pianist without a piano. As for the question of life after death prior to the resurrection at the consummation of all things, the Christian scripture says is with Christ, but the Bible tells us next to nothing about it. It is only in resurrection that pianist and piano are restored to one another and redemption fully made manifest. Prior to this, the human person in death is radically broken. The unity of the whole person is referred to in scripture as the image of God with the heart or soul as the center and point of concentration of the human being. The Greek word for heart in Colossians 3.15 is cardia, where we get the English word cardiac. The term stands for our entire mental, emotional, and moral activity. It is a figure for the hidden springs of one's life, denoting the center of inward life, which either defiles our action or is renewed in righteousness. So Peter speaks of the hidden person of the heart. Like the center of a circle in relation to its circumference or like rays of light coming through a lens converge in a focal point, so all the aspects of reality and all the layers of our functioning converge in the heart. It is in the heart that we find the indissoluble unity that is the human person. Scripture therefore identifies the heart as the origin of human thought and action, of conscience and moral awareness as the organ of faith. Most fundamentally, the heart refers to the deepest creaturely orientation of human beings to our creator.
This is why the heart is not accessible to the sciences, because it goes before and brings together temporal functions and structure. It is only known by divine revelation. This is the fundamental mystery of man. This is the reason why we can only find our rest in God. We are both imminent and transcendent beings. Imminent in that we are totally bound to creation as creatures. Transcendent in that God has set eternity in our hearts. We were made for eternal fellowship with the triune God. And in the root of our being, the heart, we are turned toward our maker who is truly transcendent. As St. Augustine famously put it, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. It should be no surprise then that we cannot be reduced to one of our temporal functions like logical thinking, which arbitrarily abstracts one function as the essence of man and effectively denies the rest. There is no such thing as man in himself. There are only human beings in religious relation to God. There is no true understanding of man without the truth of man as a holistic unity, as God's creature made for relationship with him and called to serve him in the created cosmos. So where does the rubber meet the road in the Christian vision of humanity? If man is not a dualistic being consisting of two or more things, a higher and lower part, material substance and soul substance, if he is in fact a unity with all his functions coming to focus in the heart, then every aspect of life and culture matters. Creation then is meaning. We cannot focus solely on a so-called spiritual life. Our bodies, relationships, vocational life, sexual life, family life, and everything we do in all God's cosmos really counts. There is no part of creation lesser or evil in itself. There is no such thing as a sacred, secular, higher, lower, spiritual, material division in creation. Redemption is for the whole person and every aspect of creation. What someone does in the body, they do with the whole person. It is in this depth dimension that we can understand man as created for fellowship with God and loving service to God, directing all things for his glory, though now we are fallen in every part of our being and in need of redemption. We have talked then about the structure of things in creation, which refers to its orderliness as it was originally, and as God's word in his son still impinges upon it, calling it back to what it is still meant to be and to what it will one day become. This structure is held together at every moment by God's gracious word. But direction concerns the orientation of those aspects of life to creation or life as it is now distorted and misdirected through our fall into sin. All creation has been affected by it. However, in Christ's reconciling work, 
All things are, in principle, renewed and being directed toward obedience to Christ, made subject to him, scripture says. The structures for creation stand forever, whilst the structures of creation are fallen in Adam. Because of his faithfulness to his promise, God upholds and maintains those orders for creation. But apart from Christ, our life within them remains misdirected. In him, we experience the restoration of our lives, beginning with our hearts and the power to redirect those structures toward obedient service to Christ. It is for this reason that we need deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's for this reason that a religious antithesis runs through the hearts and lives of all people and the totality of life. Yet the cosmic order of creation that Christ sustains remains the pattern for redemption. The renewing impact of the cross and resurrection enters into the fabric of creation, including us. For if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. This means that the image of God is being restored in us by the one who is the image of the invisible God. As a people renewed in Christ, we have a calling to bring the order of our life in the world, whether in the pulpit, politics, the pasture, or policing, in the classroom, the marketplace, and in the home, into conformity with God's order for life in the world. In another mystery, as his body, we are assured that as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 48 through 49. The practical result in our everyday lives is that the one who is the image of the invisible God by his spirit dwells in us and is restoring us to that image, fully realized in the fullness of our inheritance in the resurrection. This restoration occurs in our daily tasks. Christ's authority as the image of God becomes ours as we are renewed in him, reflecting his glory and representing him on earth by our total physical presence. In short, we make Christ visible as his body. What we do here and now has eternal value and significance. The gift of life is a marvel. The glory of life is that we have been redeemed. The opportunity of that life is to participate in the reconciliation of all things to God. The mystery of life is that when the dead in Christ are raised as whole persons, the land and sea shall give up their dead and God will make his dwelling with us in a renewed earth and heaven so that we can say with Job, in my flesh shall I see God, 
Such is the marvel and mystery of man. 